had you read his stuff before? Well, this is his first novel. No, I mean, I know, but had you... Oh, yeah, well, um, Professor Macaulay in the writing department sent me, like, the, uh, like, the excerpts for, for the reading and also a few others, and I, I, I read them all, and I, I really... Because it takes place during Prague, during the Velvet Revolution. Yeah, and I... I that's a time period I, I knew very little about. I didn't know much about it. It was an interesting in to... to <clears throat> Neat. Um, well, it's working out really well, that revolution these days. Especially in Ukraine. Um, okay, so those of you who handed your papers in as papers, um, as opposed to texts, Online, as opposed to attachments, um, are he they're here. Um, I think they're all here. And uh, those of you who handed them in online, I will get you. Um, I will uh, get them back to you by tonight. Um, so these are the paper ones. You get to pick them up later um, at the end of class. I think everyone is here. Is that right? Um, I mean, everyone who handed one in. <laughs> Clearly, everyone is not here, although you might not know it. Um, but everyone who handed one in. No, I'm wrong. Um, Abby's not here, right? Okay. So, um, and uh, they were they were actually pretty good. Um, so, if you got a crap grade, <laughs> um, then you're the exception that proved the rule. Um, <laughs> But if you didn't, but um, no, I thought they were, I was glad. Um, also, I don't, have you gotten these from the English, from other English classes? Does anyone need one? These are the classes that you can register for. Look, Irish literature. It's a good class, you guys should take it. Okay, so. Take Shakespeare, don't kill me. Don't, don't make me sad. Oh, I, wait, did you get, oh, you gra that's why you didn't get one. No, that's not why you didn't get one. Does anyone need one of these, a green sheet? <coughs> Oh, well, just, do you need that? What? Uh, no. Uh, yeah. Okay, here. Pass that to Rachel. Anyone else? Um, okay, so um, I don't know what I did with my books. So I brought in some other book. Um, so what we're going to do, are you still loving Marvell? Are you beginning to love Marvell? Um, is that an enthusiastic yes or an unenthusiastic yes? So basically, I, if I am correct, we have four classes left, including today. Is that right? Because that's plus our optional, our, sorry, plus our optional makeup class, um, but four official classes. Um, so I think uh, what we'll do is um, we'll keep on with Marvell today and um, Friday, and then we will do Milton for the three classes, one of which is optional. Um, after vacation, and we should figure out a time for that um, final class. So we there there's two days of reading period, right? Um, and those are the thirtieth and the first. Does that is that what you think also? Um, so uh, which is better for people if we were to um, if you were to come to a makeup class, the thirtieth or the first? The Makes first. no difference. The first May Day, which is bad French for help me. Do you know that that's why people call May Day, May Day, that that's the distress call? Um, it's bad French for what should be a de moi, help me, but it's 
um, you help me, not as an imperative, but as a simple sentence, would be um, vous m'aidez. Um, that is you, me, help. But mayday actually doesn't work um, that way. That's, that's Americans thinking that French works like American. <laughs> so, okay, so we'll aim for May 1st. And um, is this a good time? Would you like to meet at like 7 a.m.? Would that be better? Uh, would you like to meet earlier, 10 a.m.? What's good for you guys? What day of the week is? is Eleven. Sure. Okay. So, um, all right. So we'll aim for eleven on May first. Okay. So we were in the middle of the garden, um, or at the beginning of the garden. Let me just figure out what page it's on. Um, house upon Appleton House, going. Upon Appleton House. That was the long poem. That, um, of course, you read for today, but. Um, if it struck you as long, <clears throat> it may be that you would like to reread it <laughs> for Friday. Um, so it's really, it is really great. Um, we will look at that. We'll look at the Horatian Ode um, on Cromwell's returning from Ireland, and um, we'll see where we are. But. Um, I'm also going to bring in the poem um, called The Unfortunate Lover, which is not in, you have it, right, in that book, yeah, but which is not in the Norton, um, but which is an important source for um, the Scarlet Letter, as you will see, um, an interesting source for the Scarlet Letter. Um, all right, so um, back to the garden. Um, so remember that what we were looking at in the garden is the way um, in the garden metaphor and what vehicle and tenor within metaphor uh, come together. That is that um, things that are in ordinary life symbolic, um, therefore on, in some large sense metaphorical, um, the oak, the palm, and the bays um, represent something. Um, technically, they're probably not metaphors, um, but the point is they are in a figurative relationship to what they represent. Um, and if you aim to win the palm, the oak, or the bay, you aim to win it as a symbol rather than aiming to win it for itself. Um, the oak, the palm, or the bay is of almost no value if it's not understood symbolically. And um, so you can set your sights on winning such a thing. Um, but what's important is in that, in that second line, how vainly men themselves amazed to win the palm, the oak, or bays. What's important is that you should win it. Um, that's what makes it symbolic. Um, it wouldn't work just to go to the um, uh, leaf store and buy some oak leaf, some palm leaf, and some bay leaf on the spice rack, which you could easily do. 
um, because the point is that is to win it, and what it symbolizes, what oak palm and bays symbolize, are the fact that they've been won. And so there's um, an interesting tight circle there in that they symbolize the fact that they've been won, um, but they symbolize the fact that they've been won, that there was work to get to it. Um, but what Dunn is doing is saying, um, I mean, what Marvell is doing, excuse me, um, is saying um, you can find the oak, the palm, and the bays um, just as easily in the garden. And it's not quite a pure deflation here because the idea is that what the garden offers you is happiness which meets or exceeds the kind of happiness that you would get by winning those things. So the oak and the the oak, the palm and the bays, they're still symbolic in Marvell. It's not what you would go out and buy at the leaf store. Um, they still are symbolic, um, but in another sense. What you could say is that um, if they're metaphorical, or at the very least metonymical, do people know what metonymy is? Um, we, talked about this. we talked about it a bit. So, yeah, we talked about it when we were talking about um, metaphor and met metonymy as two types of figurative language, and met metonymy as being slippage. Um, whereas metaphor is being a leap from one to the other. We talked about it when we were talking about done. Um, but to the uncomplicated version of metonymy is that it's a connection where you're not supposed to think or, or um, imagine that there's a structural similarity between the, between the thing that is standing for the other thing and that other thing, but rather that they are connected. So um, if you say um, the crown or the White House looks amiss at um, the Kremlin's um, agitation within Crimea or within, um, within Ukraine, um, it's not that the White House is a metaphor for Obama and that the Kremlin is a metaphor for Putin. Um, you might think that, but it wouldn't quite be right because um, there's nothing about the White House that you could, um, let's say you have a three-point theory of metaphor, which seems reasonable enough, um, that a three-point theory of metaphor is that if you use a metaphor for something, there should be at least three ways that the thing that's a metaphor should be like should be mappable onto the thing that it's a metaphor for. That is, that the tenor should be mappable in, in at least three, on three minority ways. Three things that's not true of everything, that are not true of everything, um, should be should go from tenor to vehicle. So you know, if you say um, I opened the door and um, and was sh and a giant, you know, you're writing a, a, a detective novel and or something like I turned the corner and the giant was standing there. Um, so what, as a metaphor, what that means is the person that I was pursuing or the person that I was confronting um, was big and was clearly going to be hard to hurt and um, would be able to hurt me very easily and was scary. Um, and so there are three points where you could take a metaphor for just a man, a large man, is met, um, is described as being a giant. Um, however, if you talk about a hired gun, 
Um, it's not that you're supposed to in any way, if you picture a giant when you're just picturing a large guy, um, that just intensifies or has the effect of intensifying the thing um, that, that the tenor is, at any, is anyhow. But if you say, you know, um, there is, I knew there was a hired gun and I opened the door and there he was, you wouldn't just have a big gun or you wouldn't <laughs> be picturing a big gun. Um, in the room the way you might picture a giant. So a gun there is a metonymy. Um, and the idea is that the reason this person is being hired is because of his or her skills with a gun. Um, and it's the gun that matters. Um, their skills with a gun that matter. Um, and not anything else about them as human beings. Um, all that matters is their skills as a gun. So if you say all hands on deck, um, which is another example of metonymy. Um, it's these are people who can do work with their hands. Manual labor, where the word manual, you know, comes from hand. Um, so um, often a form of metonymy is something called a synecdoche, where what a synecdoche is is a part for a whole. It's also sometimes whole for part, but that's much rarer. Um, but a part for a whole. So if you say all hands on deck, you also mean plus the people attached to those hands. Um, and so you talk about the part rather than the whole. If you say, look, there's a sail upon the horizon, um, that then the sail is part of the ship that it is um, attached to. So that's a fairly standard idea of synecdoche as part for whole. Um, synecdoche belongs to the larger category of metonymy. And metonymy is not only part for whole, but sometimes it will be cause for effect or effect for cause. Um, and um, sometimes it'll simply be um, uh, something in some sort of reciprocal relationship, something that is always found with something else. Um, so um, often this is true when you're talking about disease. That is, you would talk about chickenpox, and chickenpox is actually the symptoms of a disease, um, but it's also the name of the disease that it's the symptoms of. Um, that is, you're pocky, and you have a rash, or mumps, or whatever. Any disease named after a rash um, is going to be uh, have a metonymical name. That's not part for whole. That's association. Um, that is, it's not, oh, there's chickenpox, but that's part of a larger thing, which is what? The virus. But no, the virus isn't pocky. The virus causes pox. Um, so metonymy is um, some kind of association which is not a metaphorical one. In fact, you could probably say that metaphor is never an association because it's always talking about something in terms of something that it is not. Um, so and synecdoche is a very common type of metonymy. Um, common enough that it has its own name, Synecdoche, um, as in Synecdoche, New York. Terrifying um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, and yeah, it is. And look what happened to him. Um, what is the, what do you think is the grammatical significance of that literary device within the context of that movie? Well, <laughs> that it keeps turning out that everything that he's doing is actually part of the larger project. Every time you think you're in the outer world, it turns out it's part of the project. Um, 
that that you think you're seeing the city, but in fact you're seeing a, a stage mock-up of the city, and every time you think you've pulled out to see the real thing that this thing was a part of, it turns out, no, it's another part of. So it's just, it's part for whole, part, part it's, it's an expanding nested series of parts for holes. I think that's the obvious meaning. Um, probably it also does have all those diseases that he keeps being diagnosed with mm. are, are all if not synecdoches, at least metonymies for life. Um, and then there's a joke on Schenectady, New York, um, which is the stupid joke that's, <laughs> that's really in the title. Um, okay, so because Synecdoche has its own name, um, does everyone know how to spell it, by the way? S-Y-N-E-C-H-O-C-H-E. Synecdoche. So the doki part is is dosh, but pronounced doki. <laughs> um, doch. Um, so, um, because synecdoche has is is clearly enough defined um, to have its own name, it's worth distinguishing between synecdoche and other types of metonymy, and that's something that Marvell is doing here. Um, synecdoche is an easy metonymy because. Um, to use a famous example from um, philosophy, um, one thing, if you, if you meet someone from a culture that you don't understand a word of their language or, or in fact how they parcel out the wor world, you know that for some cultures the future is behind us and the past is ahead of us. Um, this is a standard thing that linguists tell you that in some American Indian languages, I think, I think Apache in particular, they talk about the future as behind you and the past as ahead of you. Why? Because you can see behind you. Um, you, um, you already know what's in, what's in um, I'm sorry, you can see ahead of you. You already know um, what happened in the past. It's all visible just as you're seeing straight ahead. Um, whereas what's to come, you don't know, so it's like it's behind your back. Um, and so the proper adverbs, the proper temporal adverbs, they think the natural temporal adverbs are ahead is what you can see, um, and therefore the past, and behind is what you can't see, and therefore the future. It's really hard for us to internalize that, but for them it's really hard to think, wait, why would you say the future is ahead of you? Can you really see the future just like that? And so they would be just as surprised. Um, in some languages, the word for red and black are the same, and they, um, it appears that um, their actual color experiences of native speakers of those language, um, languages are different. So these are standard examples. Um, in, um, you know that, it, that in Homer, they're always talking about the wine-dark sea. Yeah. Um, so, sometimes, so somehow they see the color of wine and the color of the Mediterranean as similar where uh, most moderns would not see them as similar. And this is dark red wine that we're talking about. <laughs> um, so um, <coughs> the um, <clears throat> reason to talk about this is to say that, there, that when you're talking about synecdoche, um, you can almost always count on its reliability. So the famous philosophical example, do you, have people heard of W.V. Quine, um, American philosopher of the 20th century? Largely, 
pretty much regarded as, as after William James, who died at the beginning of the century, the greatest American philosopher of the 20th century. Quite wonderful. Really writes like an angel. Almost everything he wrote is in short essays. Um, How do you spell his last name? Q-U-I-N-E. If you know who Robert Quine is. No. Oh, my God. Popular culture reference that you don't know. The great guitar player Robert Quine. Do you know? Okay, well, Quine is like his great uncle, so, but <laughs> what am I telling you? Nothing. Um, Robert, yeah, he played with Lou Reed. He was, um, yeah, that's good. Um, so, um, yeah, and <laughs> he may have played with the Velvets at some point. Uh, Velvet Underground? Yes, good. Um, so, um, Quine's famous example of what he calls radical translation is if you, if you go to a culture where you don't know anyone and um, a rabbit comes hopping by, um, someone might say, Gava guy in that culture. And you would wonder what it meant. And Quine says, basically, you would, you would probably, in his stipulation, you would probably be fine assuming that that word meant rabbit, um, or behold a rabbit, lo, a rabbit. Um, but that you also wouldn't go wrong, um, even if what they meant is something that we would translate as a time slice of rabbithood, um, which is one possibility, or undetached rabbit part. Which is another possibility. So, look, undetached rabbit part. Um, and the point is that if what they meant by Gavagai was undetached rabbit part, um, you would never know because you would only have an undetached rabbit part where you had a rabbit. And everywhere that you had a rabbit, you would have undetached rabbit parts. Um, and so, what he's basically saying is because we would never know that difference it's actually not a difference that matters. Um, there is no actual difference that we can, if we can't name the actual difference between an undetached rabbit part and a rabbit, um, then they mean the same thing. Now, obviously, that's only an example. We can tell the difference between an undetached rabbit part because we can grab the rabbit and pull his little ear and say, see, undetached rabbit part rest of rabbit. So there are ways with enough paraphrase that you can do it. But that for him is you can never get to a place where you can be sure that there wouldn't be some other translation of what they're saying with the same reality about it. So synecdoche is like undetached rabbit part. Um, it's something that's pretty general and uh, you don't have to worry about. Metonymy, not necessarily, because metonymy can require you to know something about cause and effect or about the world or about um, how things go together. So if you say the White House looks with concern at what the Kremlin is doing in the Ukraine, um, you would have to know that the White House was the seat of the American executive or to know that that's where the president not only lived but worked. Um, yeah. So how would Quine um, respond, you know, how the Eskimos have 30 or 60-something words for the color white. So if you're walking along and someone holds up a huge white sheet and the Eskimo says some color that Americans only have one word for, yeah. would Quine say that, that all those distinctions in shades of white ultimately don't matter? or 
No, I think it's that's that's not that's that is not the thing that he's after in mm. in the um, Gavagai, um, in its very famous example of Gavagai. But no, he would say that any difference that made a difference does matter, and um, if you couldn't see the difference, I mean, this is something that people t um, philosophers who talk about color are very interested in because. Um, Colors don't actually correspond to reality, although we tend to think they do, and um, some people can see color differences. This is leaving aside cultural differences. Some people are colorblind, and others aren't. Um, but the basic idea is that um, if someone can make a distinction that you can't, you nevertheless think there's a distinction there. Um, so that colorblind people um, can see that that everyone else, or that ninety percent of their of their friends, are agreeing that two things are different, that they're seeing the same, and um, they will then say, "Okay, so I lack the possibility of seeing that difference." Um, same. By the way, it goes the other way too. That is, colorblind people can see things that um, non-colorblind people can't see. Um, usually, it's not as useful what they can see that non-colorblind people can't. Um, but it does go both ways. Um, and so you become aware of that because there's, there isn't agreement in what you're seeing. The thing about Gavagai is there would be agreement. That is, you could um, live with the people who, um, whenever they see a rabbit, say Gavagai, meaning undetached rabbit part. And you could go rabbit hunting with them and spend you know, your life um, grunting at them because you don't <laughs> speak their language. Um, and you would never find a place where they were, where you would say, oh, you guys, look, Gavakai. And they would say, what? <laughs> um, because every time you pointed to a rabbit, they would see an undetached rabbit part. And that's Quine's point, that you would never be able to tell the difference there. Okay, I haven't thought of, I can think of an example, trying to think of an example, if you want me to, but couldn't they potentially, if they're not just pointing it out, say a sentence in which Gavaga, which means undetached rabbit part, cannot be interchanged for the word rabbit. Well, I so mean, then if you don't have a grasp on that representing that concept, then you won't understand that sentence. Yeah, then you would then you would be aware that you weren't actually saying the same thing they were as you thought you had. So is Klein's point that that distinction is irrelevant if in every case that the word can be used, you don't tell the difference? Yeah. So Gabaga wouldn't be. No, 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 no. He's he's okay. saying take take this as as a as a fairy tale okay, of. Okay. The very fact that we can say undetached rabbit part or um, lower rabbit or time slice of rabbit hood or whatever, the very fact that we can make those distinctions means that they are makeable in language. Um, but you can you know, always imagine a subset of speakers um, who wouldn't be able to make those distinctions. The, the example I always use because um, it works, and I think a couple of you heard it, is um, the word livid which um, how many people think means red? Angry. Yeah, so he turned livid with rage. What color did he turn? How many people think red? Really? Also, doesn't it also mean pale? Yeah, and how many people think pale? I was thinking yeah. white. Yeah, so I think what generally, and you guys don't have an opinion? I didn't know it was associated with color. Really? Yeah. Huh. Okay, maybe it's a word that's falling out of use. Um, my experience, having having pulled people on this for many years, is it works to about three quarters red. So I'm actually, you, you guys are outliers. 
Um, but three quarters of people think it means to turn bright red with rage. You know, just just turn red with rage, and about a quarter of people um, tend to see it as turning pale with with rage. Um, and um, the point is that you can go your whole life talking to someone um, about people you know who have turned livid with rage. Um, let's say you and your best friend um, have a job as civil servants denying people perfectly reasonable things because <laughs> it's fun. You man, a great job. The <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and every day you talk about how many people have, have, got, have been livid with rage that day. Um, and you could both go to your graves not knowing that every time you said livid um, and you were thinking red, your friend was actually thinking pale. Um, and so you, that'd be in line with Klein's philosophy? Yeah, that livid would, in some sense, um, livid would have to mean the same thing to you if you didn't know the difference, even though in another sense, um, you know, uh, uh, someone who knows more about the etymology of English words would be able to say, no, there is a difference. But ultimately, um, the point is that it illustrates a standing possibility, which is um, that some expansion of, if we took our language as a target language, we might find out that people are using it differently if we had a broader language to make those distinctions with. And, uh, but we don't have a broader language. We only have our language. So this wasn't, well, maybe it was going to be a philosophy of language class, inevitably, um, since all these poets <clears throat> are thinking so hard about language. Yeah. Well, that reminds me, we just read um, Benjamin's Task of the Translator a few weeks ago in Dave's class. Uh -huh. And Benjamin's point that, you know, there's a loaf of bread on the table. You know, the French would call it pan. The Germans would call it, I can't remember the word, in Brot. German. And yes, they're, you know, both those words are referring to the same material object, but what, you, what isn't the whole context of what that loaf of bread means to each person is going to be yeah. very different. And so the translator has to be able to get at those other yeah. kind of contextual things. So, so in a sense, it maybe Quine's, um, you know, Quine's idea is, is obviously kind of vastly simplified in terms of our relationship to that rabbit. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, it it is, and the but the the point is that it's a simplified Still example. It, right? <laughs> um, no, and and um, one way to see this is in is in the joke about um, an American. It, it's a joke. Well, I'll I'll tell you the joke, and then the meta context of the joke. Um, an English speaker, a French speaker a Spanish speaker and a German speaker are arguing about which is the most beautiful language. Um, and the American said, well it's, well, it's clear, you know, really English is. I mean, look, they're sitting in a meadow. And he points and he says, look at that. See, that's a butterfly. And it's just such a beautiful word because you get both the sense of it's fluttering by, and um, which is which is where the name comes from, but also that kind of smoothness. It's flying and it's smooth, and it just evokes all of summer, and it's quite wonderful. And the Spanish speaker says, yes, I agree that butterfly is a beautiful word, but it's not beautiful the way mariposa is. <laughs> That's a and just it's it, it it evokes just all of nature, mariposa, 
and the French. Language are they arguing? <laughs> Good question. <The> universal. <laughs> Klingon. Esperanto. <laughs> and um, the um, Frenchman says, "Butterfly, oui, butterfly, mariposa." Um, but you must admit, papillon. <laughs> papillon has to be the most beautiful word for that beautiful, beautiful evocative um, um, <laughs> insect. And uh, the German is listening to all this and he says, <laughs> Und was ist wrong with Schmetterling? So, um, my father, whose first language was German, when I told him this joke once, looked at me in complete baffled disbelief. And he actually has a great sense of humor. But he looked at me in complete baffled disbelief, and he said, what is wrong with Schmetterling? It's gorgeous. <laughs> um, so the point is, it is gorgeous, <laughs> as gorgeous as, as Butterfly is to us. Um, Schmetterling is to um, native German speakers. Um, and so the point is that, that interestingly enough, you can tell things about languages from outside them that you can't tell from inside them. And that's one way of talking about Quine's point. The, the payoff for us being um, that um, synecdoche seems a particularly um, unproblematic mode of metonymy. Um, but other modes of metonymy, you have to know stuff. You have to know what the, that the White House um, isn't um, an undetached presidential home or something like that, um, that the White House is, is where the president lives, that it's at the center of Washington, that it's where the president um, works and makes speeches, and um, when things are really tense, it's in the White House that they're discussed. Um, so you have to know that. Similarly, you have to know that about the Kremlin. Um, and um, those are metonymies. They're not metaphors at all. Um, it's not that when the president is feeling particularly um, um, presidential, then he kind of looks like a house. <laughs> um, and, and draws himself and up white. like a house. And, and white. Um, <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so it, it doesn't mean that. So that's a metonymy. Um, the standard definition, the standard example of metonymy will, is that people talk about the crown instead of. Uh, we talked about this last time. The crown instead of um, the king. Um, so that so, or maybe we didn't. We talked about the king versus the king. But there's also um, uh, in British courtrooms now. Um, the when the prosecution is prosecuting and they call a witness, they will say, the crown calls um, the name of the witness. And the idea is the crown stands for the regent in England, the king or the queen of England. Um, not because we're supposed to imagine, oh, look at Queen Elizabeth, she's like a walking crown, um, but rather that the crown is what's associated with her. Um, so um, metaphor, synecdoche, and metonymy, they're two, metaphor and metonymy are the two opposing things, but within metonymy, we, sh we should say metonymy versus synecdoche, or the other kinds of metonymy, metonymy versus synecdoche. So, when men amaze themselves to win the palm, the oak, or bays, um, the palm, the oak, and the bays are metonymies for um, victory, 
as uh, military or um, poetic um, or um, um, political, um, and they are um, therefore because they're metonymies for those things. They're not things that you can go to the leaf store to buy and feel that you've gotten them the same way. Again, the emphasis here is on the word wins. But for Marvell, they're also a kind of metonymy, but the kind of metonymy called synecdoche. That is, it's not the same to go to, let's say, the freezer where a whole lot of um, palms, oaks, and bays are being kept fresh for the next time someone has a victory um, and say, oh, I can raid the palm, oak, and bays fridge or freezer and get what I want. Um, the point is that the palm, the oak, and the bays are part of the garden. So they are synecdoches for the garden that they're in. And that's a subtle distinction. I mean, I think that that's part of, we all, we, I, I think you all knew this, but I'm just making explicit what it is that Marvell is so good at a combination of, of subtlety and ease in his writing. And so the subtlety and ease there is, okay, yeah, um, the garden is where you will find those things easily. And you'll find them easily because they're in the garden. Um, and there on Sesson Labor Sea, crowned from some single herber tree whose short and narrow virgin shade does prudently their toils upraid, while all flowers and all trees do close to weave the garlands of repose. Um, so they only go to single trees, but this garden has all of them. So that's why they are synecdoches for the garden. Um, then we go to allegory, fair quiet, have I found thee here, and innocence, thy sister dear. Mistaken long, I sought you then in busy companies of men. Your sacred plants, if here below, only among the plants will grow. Society's all but rude to this delicious solitude. No white nor red was ever seen so amorous as this lovely green. So now the colors of love... Um, have never been so amorous as this lovely green. Fond lovers, cruel as their flame, that is cruel as the love that burns them, cut in these trees their mistress' name. Little, alas, they know or heed how far these beauties, hers, exceed. Fair trees, wheresoe'er your barks, I wound, no name shall but your own be food. When we have run our passion's heat, Love hither makes his best retreat. Um, so, paraphrase that. Um, if there's being wrong, after making love, um, the actual feeling of love withdraws. Okay. Um, or. After we've tried everything, or after our love's run out, like uh, our passion's run out, and our like each of our effort, like and then it's like goes away. Yeah. Okay. Um, what does the word heat mean there? Do you guys have a footnote on it? Yeah. So, right. So, if you're watching the Summer Summer Olympics in track and field, and they talk about the first heat and the second heat, first round. 
Yeah. So that's actually what this means. He, he means running a heat. Um, so when we have run our passions, heat means both when our passions, heat has run out, when we have run through the heat of passion. You know, oh, yes, I was feeling so passion, passionate. Do you guys know who Johnny Cash is? Yes. Of course. <laughs> well, of course. That's good that you do. Um, so uh, do you know the song Jackson? Yeah, so um, we've been talking about Jackson ever since the fire went out. So when the fire of our love has gone out, this will be the only class in all of America where Johnny Cash and Andrew Marvell are compared. <laughs> I just want you to know that. Um, That's a dissertation topic. Yes. <laughs> um, when, when the heat is burned out. So that's one thing that it means. Um, but it means it by meaning it also in a more literal sense. When, when um, the uh, race, the um, sprint of passion is over. Um, and they mean the same thing. And we're no longer passionate. But the reason to get the literal meaning, this is like what... What other covering needs you? What 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 more covering needs you than a man? Is that the literal and the and the figurative mean the same thing? That is, so the heat of passion is over. Whether you take that literally, that is to say metaphorically, as a metaphor, um, I ran the hundred yards of passion. Now I'm exhausted. Um, or whether you take it as um, a another kind of metaphor, um, which is I felt the heat of passion, but now the heat of passion has faded. Um, in both cases, love hither makes his best retreat, that is, to this garden. Um, again, retreat there meaning both um, a place that you would withdraw or retire to, um, that is, you know, your retreat in the country. That's a place that you go to for recreation and renovation. But also, okay, love ran really fast, and now it's walking away from where it was. Again, there's something physical about that. And there should be because the garden is a real garden. That has come to this real garden. It's not a metaphorical garden. It's a real garden. And then he goes on, the gods that mortal beauty chase still in a tree did end their race. So the gods that ran after mortal women um, always ended their race, their passions heat, the end of the sprint that they did, um, always, found, always ended at a tree. Um, why is that? Because Apollo hunted Daphne so, only that she might laurel grow. So what's the story of Daphne and Apollo? Uh, Apollo fell in love with Daphne, who was mortal, and chased her everywhere, trying to have his way with her, and she prayed. Um, I don't remember which god she prayed to, but she so wanted to keep her chastity, she prayed to be turned into a laurel. Or no, she prayed to, that she prayed to die? Or that she, prayed she prayed to, to escape. Escape, and so she was turned into a laurel. Yeah, so the basic myth, it was her father who did it. The basic myth is Apollo's about to grab her, and oh no, a tree. Um, well, says Apollo, I will then make this tree my sacred tree, hence the idea of laurel as um, what poets get, a crown of laurel. Um, so Apollo fell in love with Daphne. Daphne turned into um, laurel. This is one of the stories <coughs> in 
<coughs> of Metamorphosis that Ovid tells, and Apollo then makes the laurel sacred to him. Um, but Marvell is, who's interested in laurel in some sense, is um, describing this slightly differently as, yeah, that's what he wanted. The whole point was the laurel. Um, and Pan did after Syrinx speed, not as a nymph, but for a reed. Um, so what's the story about Pan and Syrinx? Do people know? It's the same story, except... <laughs> Yeah, and called then, Syringia. And that's what, like, pan, like Pan's pipes? Like, yeah. Yeah, so the idea is that Apollo and Pan ran after mortal women. They turned into one into a tree, the other into a reed. Um, and these are, again, origin stories um, from Greek mythology. And um, so the way Marvell is... is um, uh, reimagining this is that they weren't thwarted. This was their goal, that Apollo really wanted Laurel, and so he chased after, after Daphne so that she would turn into Laurel. Pan really wanted a reed to play um, music on, so he chased after Syrinx, and she turned into a reed. Um, and that's why he's going to this garden. Um, again, you could say that Laurel and, um, and Reed are metonymies, pseudo-synecdoches, maybe even pseudo-metaphors for the women that they come from. Um, but here the idea is that they want what, they want the actual object rather than what the object stands for. But they want the actual object because the object is a place, is, is a thing that represents this place, that is part of this place, a place where there is poetry and music. So that's why um, Pan and Daphne, I mean, why Syrinx and Daphne are mentioned here. And then this great um, expostulation, what wondrous life. Do you guys have is this or in this? Is this. In yes. Yeah, it, it, there are two versions. So um, I always prefer his. What wondrous life is this I lead? Ripe apples drop about my head. The luscious clusters of the vine upon my mouth do crush their wine. The nectarine and curious peach into my hands themselves do reach. Stumbling on melons as I pass, ensnared with flowers, I fall on grass. So um, it's a totally great place. There's fruit everywhere. Um, it's all beautiful. And um, if I fall down, it's because I'm ensnared with flowers and it's not a hard fall because I fall on grass. What, what is the theological background to this stanza? The fall of man. Yeah. What wondrous life is this I lead in this garden? Ripe apples drop about my head, so they're the apples. But in this garden, there's no forbidden fruit. It's just ripe apples um, all over, not the apple. Um, it's erotic in its way. Um, the luscious clusters of the vine upon my mouth do crush their wine. You should see this as, a, um, as an incipient sex scene. Could he possibly have had Herrick's? Mind in mind. 
Um, well, it's the luscious clusters of the vine, so it's actually the grapes. But um, but it is it is um, vegetable love, as he calls it elsewhere. Um, and yeah, it's I mean it's it's very sensuous, and um, and you know fruit is often um, portrayed sensuously in this sense, as in May West, Beulah, peel me a grape. Um, but it's um, again the sensuality is because it's fruit because it's because it's a um, vegan sensuality. Um, it's not like the like the fall of Adam. Um, so the nectarine and curious peach into my hands themselves do reach. Um, it's obvious, I think, what um, the alternative is. Um, Stumbling on melons as I pass, ensnared with flowers, I fall on grass. So he falls also, as Adam did, but only onto grass. And again, behind this, somewhere is all flesh is grass. Um, and But here it's, no, it really is grass. Um, Damon the mower's favorite um, growing thing. Um, this scythe of mine discovers wide more ground than all his sheep do hide. Um, all their sheep do hide, and though in will in wool more poor than they, yet am I richer far in hay. Um, and then another one of those strange comparatives that Marvell uses. Meanwhile, the mind from pleasure less withdraws into its happiness. Um, paraphrase that. Even though there's no pleasure in the mind, it, if so, comparing it to the, the mower, even poor in pleasure, it's rich in happiness. Okay, good. Um, I think it says it differently that the mind is able to recognize lesser, so the note is lesser pleasure. So I think that the mind, if it, it's, it's able to recognize things that are like not worthwhile, they're filled with less pleasure. Um, so because of that, it can retrieve into happiness, whatever that means. Okay, so, so one way of reading pleasure less is um, to read it as from um, a lesser amount of pleasure. That is, it withdraws from, not because of less pleasure, but withdraws from a less pleasurable environment into its own happiness. Um, and that's um, um, comparing the happiness of the outside world um, or the pleasure of the outside world to the pleasure of being withdrawn into your own mind. Um, the other possibility is that the mind has been made less by pleasure. That is, all the terrible, difficult, strenuous, um, um, things in life having been removed the mind gets to be smaller than it was not in a bad sense but less is demanded of it and that makes it happy just as a garden is a smaller place than the world in which it's a garden um, the trope here is something called um, the hortus conclusus which is um, an idea in gardening and also in literature of a hidden garden 
Um, Hortus Conclusus, it's not Marvell's invention. Um, you'll find it before him, you'll find it afterwards. And the idea is, so yeah, I mean, the secret garden, if you, yes, no? Francis Hodgson Burnett? Yeah, and a movie version. Great book, great movie. Um, is a place where the wide world is excluded, and there you get to be in this small but wonderful and safe and separated and insulated place. So the mind is made less from by pleasure. Therefore, the mind made less by pleasure withdraws into its happiness is one possibility. And the other possibility is, um, therefore, the mind away from lesser pleasures withdraws into its happiness. Um, and those are, those are opposites of each other, and yet they come to the same thing which is that the mind withdraws into its happiness. The mind, that ocean where each kind doth straight its own resemblance find. Do you have a footnote on that? Why the ocean is something where each kind doth straight yeah, its own resemblance Yeah, it says, as the ocean supposedly contained a counterpart of every creature on land, so the ocean of the mind holds the innate ideas of all things in neoplatonic philosophy. Yeah. So what that says. Um, basically, the, it was believed at the time. Hey, did you guys ever grow up with um, a belief that everyone had a double? This is something that was part of kids' literature when I was growing up. Um, so that Well, it's, I mean, it, I, I read a lot of Philip Pullman, so yeah, not but a that's belief, a, but... Yeah, so. but that's a different, those are different universes. <laughs> um, have you read Galatea? No. Um, you know he's doing a fourth volume? What, really? Yeah, he, with, he withdrew into his own happiness to write the fourth volume <laughs> of his dark materials. Um, Is it called Galatea? No, no. Sorry. So Galatea, all right, you asked. Do people know who Philip Pullman is? Yeah. Like, the, only the, the greatest young adult yeah, writer of our times? The greatest young adult writer of our times, by far? Yeah, well, they made the Golden Compass. You haven't read them? <laughs> no, I did, but I... You didn't like it? Yeah, I That's very sad. I liked the first two. I thought the third one kind of... The third one's it's too long. Yeah. It's depressing as hell. It's depressing as hell. It's also too long. I don't know if they're calling the greatest young adult writer. Oh, but he's... Of our time? Oh, he, yeah. yeah. That of our time. Of our time. <laughs> yeah, of our time. No. <laughs> um, no, the Mulefa stuff in in the Amber Spy class I could live without, but... Um, but the best parts of the Amber Spyglass are unbelievably great, um, like the trip to the world of the dead. Mm. Um, but so anyhow, here's the story about Philip Pullman. Um, long, long ago, at a university far away, um, <laughs> a friend of mine was walking through the stacks of the university library, and a book fell into his hands, just off the shelf as he walked by. It was a rickety floor, or a rickety bookshelf. And um, it was called Galatea by Philip Pullman, whom no one had ever heard of except his mom at the time. Um, Pullman was uh, like 30. And um, the, so he looked at it, and it looked you know, like, why did this book fall into my hands? Um, so he opened it up and read the first paragraph, which actually I think I can read to you because um, the other day he said, hey, do you have a scan of Galatea? So I actually scanned it for him. And I think I put it on Dropbox. And um, 
you don't know this. <laughs> so, um, let me just see. Come on, where are you? Oh, I think I, I put it in a folder. That's what I did. Um, it's really worth knowing. Okay, A to Z, yes. Um, so I want P. Yep, here we go. Um, so he opens it up. And uh, the book has a kind of slogan or motto um, at the front, which is, everything is what it seems, which he thought was kind of interesting. Um, so he read the first paragraph, which goes, um, it's uh, part one, Roses from the South. One evening, the orchestra in which I played the flute gave a concert of Viennese waltzes and polkas, and when I went home afterwards, I found that my wife had disappeared without leaving a note to say where she was going. I walked out of my job the next morning and set off to look for her. First, I went to her hometown, but nobody there knew where she was. I asked our friends, but they'd heard nothing either. Finally, I went back and sat in our apartment and tried to think what might have happened. No clues came to me. I stayed there miserably while two or three days went by. Eventually, a few speculations drifted together. The last piece of music I'd played had been Strauss's Roses from the South. Roses had been her favorite flower. There was a song which went, Valencia es la tierra de las rosas, de la luz y del amor. That is, Valencia is the land of roses, of light, and of love. And Valencia was in the South. It was a city of business, what's more, and she had worked for a merchant banker and taken an interest in that side of life. I had nothing else to go by. I thought she must have gone there. I sold everything I did not need, put our furniture into store, took my flute and the little money I could gather, and set off for Valencia. So he thought, wow, that's a pretty great first page. So um, he then naturally turned to the last page, as one does, um, and read the last sentence, which goes, um, I will tell you, I can do it by heart, but since I have it, I um, electricity and finance and sexuality and happiness and evolution they all come about because of the amorous inclinations of matter so now remember this was before anyone knew who Philip Pullman was it wasn't, he didn't say whoa Philip Pullman it was like here's this book and then it had that great last sentence, electricity and finance and sexuality and happiness and evolution, they all come about because of the amorous inclinations of matter. So he decided that it was an amorous inclination of matter that caused the book to fall into his hands, um, and he took it out and read it and said, oh man, this book is just totally amazing. Um, and I read it, and I agreed, and um, went to the Strand Bookstore in New York, which had lots of remaindered books, and they had... Um, about 120 copies remaindered of Galatea, <laughs> and um, I was teaching a class in fantasy at the time, so I bought like 20 copies for my students, and they, they bought them from me at $1.95 a piece. Um, and um, slowly all the copies of Galatea disappeared, and then he published um, first the, um, the Ruby and the Smoke series, um, and then um, the His Dark Materials 
series and became a superstar and spectacularly famous. And um, Galatea, copies of Galatea started going for $100 a piece. And I bought all these copies and sold them to my now rich <laughs> students for $1.95 a piece. Um, and he would never let it be reprinted and, in fact, um, almost never talks about it. And so I wrote him a letter about how much I like Galatea, and we've been corresponding since then. Oh, so he's um, still alive? Pullman? Yeah. That's why he would be writing part four. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> At least in some universe. <laughs> why does he not want yeah, to um, Because he cannibalized it a little bit. That is, some of the, some of the episodes in Galatea um, he used in different versions, including the idea, one thing that Will says in... Um, um, in the subtle knife is matter loves matter mm. um, and that's the amorous inclinations of matter here um, and he I think as is often the case just wrote this book that he decided he could do better but I think Galatea is amazing and you can get it from interlibrary loan um, he tries not to talk about it but you can get it from interlibrary loan um, and he actually gave me permission to if I could find <laughs> if I could do it which he was sure I couldn't um, was to try and get a movie made of Galatea, but he, he gave me permission because he knew it would never happen. Um, so I've been trying but failing. Um, so um, there's another world for you, um, and there are doubles. And in Galatea, there are doubles also. Um, but anyhow, so I grew up believing in doubles. Um, I mean, I didn't grow up. I was eight and thought everyone had a double, which used to be the, the myth. The myth in the 17th century was that everything on land you could find a version of in the ocean. So if you think of seahorses, that would be an example of that. Have you um, read uh, Katsui Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go? I haven't read Never Let Me Go, no. It's the clones looking for their Yes, double. that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I've read a lot of Ishiguro, but um, people told me it was a really disturbing book. I thought it was amazing. Really? Okay, I'll read it. You're, that, that may be the tipping point. You agreed? Yeah, it's one of my favorite novels. Okay, have you read his I've, other stuff? Yeah, I read, well, I've only read Remains of the Day, which I also really love. Yeah. Um, I, I read mean, an art. Never Let Me Go, it's like disturbing. How does it compare to Orphan say. Black? Huh. Oh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> that's different. Okay, all right. <laughs> it's not pulpy or anything, <laughs> it's very slow, and then you feel the devastation slowly as you read the novel. All right, that's what... Um, Low devastation yeah. is a good way to describe it. <laughs> that's, that's what an artist of the floating world is like also, which is um, the book that kind of made him famous. Um, I mean, Remains of the Day really made him famous, but the book that made it possible for Remains of the Day to make him famous was an artist in the floating world. I think he started out slow. I don't like his really early stuff, but... Um, uh, okay, that's good to know. I will read it. Um... So in Marvell's time, the belief was that under the ocean there was a double of everything on land, um, and that this was, you know, a really interesting, sweet way that God had created the world. Um, but he's now treating the mind as an ocean, which has a double of everything in the world, which again you can think of as an exposition of the figurative language that he's using. Um, that is, there's a mental version of everything in the outside world. Meanwhile, the mind from pleasure less withdraws into its happiness. The mind, that ocean where each kind does straight its own resemblance find. That is the reason we can recognize that tree is that we have an idea of tree. That's the, that, by the way, is the platonic idea. Um, 
that we can recognize examples of things because we have in our minds the form of the thing, the platonic tree, the platonic table. Do people know this? Is this this is the kind of thing that either it's either you know or you don't? So is this new to anyone, what I'm saying now about platonic forms? Say no if it's not new to you. Is this new to you? No. Okay. Say yes if it is new to you. Is this new to you? All right. So um, that is what Quine is arguing against when he says uh, it's not that they too have the form of the rabbit in their mind and they simply have a different word to refer to something which participates in that form or idea. They may have a completely different idea, um, namely undetached rabbit part or a bunch of undetached rabbit parts hopping by. Um, and we would never know. So Plato's idea that we would have to know because everyone can say rabbit, rabbit, and it must be that we have something in common, the idea of rabbit, Quine is denying that. Um, Marvell is taking that view, the, um, the idea that in the mind there, is, um, um, these cat the, these, there are these categories that enable us to recognize things. Darwin thought that also. He thought they were put in the mind by evolution. Um, so at any rate, um, the mind, that ocean where each kind of straight its own resemblance find, yet it creates transcending these far other worlds and other seas. So even though in our minds there are um, images of everything in the real world, what does the mind do? Oh, it can create things that are not from the real world. Yeah, yeah. The imagination is greater than the real world. So, um, and there are other worlds, plural, and other seas. Again, what's interesting about the word seas there? Sorry? Oh, I don't know. Well, I mean, it has two meanings. Seas, it could also be like S I E Z E. I was thinking seas. Oh, I see. And other things that it sees. Um, don't take it as a pun, but take it conceptually. So the mind is an ocean, that ocean. So, the, so you use a metaphor for the mind, and the metaphor is the ocean. The ocean is the vehicle, the mind is the tenor. The, one of the three points in common would be that the ocean contains doubles of everything on land in the same way, or the important point in common would be the ocean contains doubles of everything on land in the same way that the mind contains doubles of everything in the world. Um, but then it turns out that among the things that are in the mind, the mind is an ocean, that ocean, but among the things in that ocean are seas, are other seas, other worlds and other seas. So first, the, first there's the metaphor, and then it turns out the mind contains the very metaphor um, that is being used to describe the mind annihilating all that's made to a green thought in a green shade. Um, paraphrase that. Something about Earth. Like, uh... Mm. Well... A green thought in a green shade would be <laughs> nothing, right? It would, would be, be like a white piece of paper on a white background. Would they be the clones, like a thought, the and then the, there's actually like a tree, like a thought yeah. of a tree and a tree? 
Okay, good. Something like that, you know what I'm saying? But also that it's a thought that he's having underneath the tree. So, and it's this beautiful idea of a green thought. Um, yes, because yes. the mind is filled with the greenness around him in a green shade. Um, because it's a shade of green leaves, but it's as though the mind is seeing the shadow itself as green. Um, as though um, everything is becoming green for the mind relaxing in the garden. Um, a lot of people worry about the word annihilate there. Um, not because, oh my god, annihilation! But because <laughs> um, annihilate means literally what? Do we know the root of annihilate? What's a nihilist? Someone who believes in nothing. Yeah, so what's the, what's the word in To make Latin? it in nothing. Nothing, yeah. So annihilate means to make nothing. It's the, obvi- it's the opposite of creation. Ob nihilo, it's to return things to nothing. So if you annihilate something, it means it's gone completely. So what do we make of annihilating all that's made to a green thought in a green shade? that green thoughts and green shades were the original forms of things. Okay. Um, And not quite the same thing as nothing, though, but it's almost as though um, that's what you can turn things into, is just this presence of greenness within the mind. Yeah, Taylor? Also that, like when the mind creates far the world and others see it's like the actual world seems very small in comparison. It's just like yeah, I I think so. Like, um, but I also think that it's we're suddenly going in the other direction, which is not that the mind is now just just fertile and fecund with all these wonderful things, but that here in the garden, I can just have this experience of a green thought and a green shade. Um, this absolutely simplified experience of just greenness. Um, so on the one hand, there's other worlds and other seas, and then there's everything is just, here I am, a green thought and a green shade. What more would anyone ever want to have? Here, at the fountain's sliding foot, or at some fruit tree's mossy root, Casting the body's vest aside, my soul into the boughs does glide. So, if you were thinking of a Dunn poem, what Dunn poem would he be thinking of? The soul leaving the body? The ecstasy. The ecstasy, yeah. Um, my soul into the boughs does glide. There, like a bird, it sits and sings, then wets and combs its silver wings. And till prepared for longer flights, waves in its plumes the various light. Um, So, again, I think that it's, um, he's just imagining, you could say, how does his soul go onto the boughs? Well, he's imagining the garden from a different perspective. And um, what, it's as though his soul becomes a bird. I am a bird now. Um, no. I am a bird now by Anthony and the Johnsons. Um, no, you don't know Anthony and the Johnsons? No, I, I question your definition of popular. <laughs> I don't know. He sells out in tiny venues, yeah. <laughs>
Um, you should listen to Anthony and the Johnsons. Um, um, so his so his soul is just it's as though his mind is flitting around the garden, and um, again that beautiful phrase waves in its plumes the various light. That is because its, its feathers are different color, so it's as though um, the light itself is a different color, but it's actually the plumes of its of its feathers. Then we go back to the original garden. Such was that happy garden state while man there walked without a mate. I'm sorry. Did you read waves as a noun or a verb? Verb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were you reading it as a noun? I was. I hadn't decided yet, but it was. I wasn't. Um, yeah. Um, I'm not sure. So yeah. what it does is it's so in the beginning, it would be there if it were now, right? Oh, that's true. Waves. Yeah. I thought about right. like I thought actually maybe it's still in this country, but it's just like the plumes of various light. The way the light is moving is like how a wave moves. That's yeah. I th- I think th- I think it is a waving motion, but it can still be a verb. Um. But I could see how it can Yeah, if you put a comma after plumes, it might work. Waves in its plumes, the various light. That is, the the various light would be the waves in its plumes. But I think it's the set of verbs is it sits and sings, wets and combs, waves. So it does a bunch of, it does five things. It sits and sings, then wets and combs its silver wings, and, till prepared for various flights, waves in its plumes, the various light. Such was that happy garden state while man there walked without a mate. So now we know um, that this is a kind of poem about disappointed love. Such was that happy garden state while man there walked without a mate. What man, what mate? Right. After a place so pure and sweet, what other help could yet be meet? What's the um, reference there? Yes, I will make a help meet for him or a help mate for him. Um, but twas beyond a mortal's share to wander solitary there. Two paradises twere in one to live in paradise alone. So yeah, a little sexist. Um, Adam was perfectly happy. It really was paradise until Eve, that woman, uh. as Bill Clinton called Monica Lewinsky. Um, so he's remembering um, or thinking how wonderful it would be for Adam to be alone. He's saying he's happy alone in this garden, but you can wonder a little bit. And then you would think that that would be the last stanza, but it isn't. There's this wonderful last stanza where he's looking at a sundial made of flowers. How well the skillful gardener drew of flowers and herbs this dial knew. Where from above the milder sun does through a fragrant zodiac run. So the sun is going through a zodiac of things on the sundial made of flowers. And as it works, the industrious bee computes its time as well as we. So the bee knows what it's doing just as much as we do. How could such sweet and wholesome hours be reckoned but with herbs and flowers? Um, So here's a sundial which is keeping track of its own of itself, basically. That's the poem in a nutshell. The flowers are um, timing their own flowerhood. Okay, so reread upon Appleton House, and it, that will be our last day on Marvell. And. Um,